They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Well, Elliot, we last week we finally finished our uh, following of Rotten Tomatoes director's tournament thing. So without that, you might think we'd be left bereft of anything to banter about here in this opening section. But you would be wrong, dear listener, if you thought that. Last week was the first of kind of the big fall film festivals or kind of early fall. I don't know if it's technically fall yet, but I just wanted to know, Elliot, had you seen any of the reviews or any of the buzz for some of the movies that premiered at this um, film festival? I think it was, oh gosh, Toronto, Venice. It was something like that. Wow. Those two places are like on opposite sides of the globe. I, I want to say it starts with a T. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't. I did not follow that at all because I don't care. Well, you should care. I'll run through the highlights for you and you can then say how much you care. Reviews are in, or at least early reviews are in for David Fincher's next movie, The Killer. All the reviews said it was uh, a fairly like kind of milk toast or boilerplate sort of story that's elevated by Michael Fassbender and David Fincher, but like everything else in it is kind of basic. The big, the big news though, and this is what I wanted to talk about, Elliot, is Yorgos Lanthimos's next movie is being hailed as a classic for the ages. I, all of the reviews I read were glowing and i just wanted to say how does it feel to eat your words on you're a bit of a yorgos hater and now you're gonna have to you're gonna have to take that with a a bit of salt so what do you what do you think of that i feel like i'm still gonna go hungry (laughs) i would i feel like the the movie is going to go well with people who are paid to review it well and people who want to appear contrarian. But outside of that, it will struggle to find its niche. I I don't think that's true. A lot of the reviews I read as well, Elliot, were from reviewers who started the review saying that they're not a huge fan of Yorgos, that they've never really liked any of his movies, and they were won over by the film that they just think it's such an incredibly visionary, interesting, fun movie. Apparently Emma Stone is amazing in it. Shoot. Mark Ruffalo, William Defoe, Willem Defoe are all amazing. I am incredibly excited for this movie. I'm incredibly excited to watch it. I'm assuming you are unmoved with all of these positive uh, reviews. Course I'm unmoved. <laughs> That's tough. Well, you should look at some of the reviews because some of the other uh Alexander Payne's new movie got really good reviews. I'm really excited for that. You might actually like that one. Uh The Zone of Interest got more good reviews. I think that's a movie that you'll probably like. Wow, fantastic stuff. Tragically, no one cares. Uh the only thing that I'm I mean, I, I'm obviously I'm excited for Fincher's new movie and Alexander Payne, sure, whatever. But the thing that I guess I would say I discovered some amount of excitement for would probably be The Promised Land, the movie with Max mm. Mickelson being directed by 
somebody who I've never heard of, but who is a longtime Mads Mikkelsen collaborator. Yeah, that I did see that movie getting pretty good reviews as well. See, so you do care, Elliot. You put on this veneer. You're trying to act too cool. Everyone knows you're not. Just be cool and nerdy like me. It's not that I'm too cool. It's just that I'm... Uh, I I have a desolate, ruined soul. <laughs> wow. In which no enthusiasm or happiness can find purchase. Ridiculous. Speaking of a desolate and whatever the second word you said was, soul, let's start talking about our movie that we're reviewing today. I can introduce it because I chose it. This is Barry Lyndon, which is Stanley Kubrick's, uh, one of his, not his last movie, but I think maybe his second to last, third to last, one of those two. It was released in 1975. This is the one that I see most often people say is like the most underrated Kubrick, which is crazy because it was nominated for like a ton, like way more awards than any of his other movies, as well as routinely lands on like top 100 films of all time lists. So I think people are just tripping. But this is... In my opinion, I guess, probably the most outside of his typical type of fare that Kubrick gets. All of his movies are fairly similar, but this one is a period drama that follows the title character, Barry Lyndon, or Redmond Barry, as he kind of tries to work his way up in the society of Europe in the 1700s. It's based on a book. I'm assuming it has very little to do with the book because that's how Kubrick makes his movies. But I watched this a couple years ago and it really stuck with me. It very quickly shot up to my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie. And I've been wanting to rewatch it for so long and we finally had an open week. I decided to do it. I rewatched it. I'm so excited to talk about this. Yeah, so let's kind of, let's jump in, Elliot. Your kind of initial thoughts, first reactions to Barry Lyndon. This ain't it, Chief. This ain't it. Oh my um, goodness. I love Stanley Kubrick. I think I mentioned in our favorite director's episode that he would have made my top five if you hadn't taken him although maybe that's not true I don't know but uh yeah I was I was not a big fan of this I thought it was way 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 too long by the end of the movie I had really checked out I was very ready for it to end like I was I had already put my computer in my lap so I could just immediately start doing something else and enjoying my time. I thought that it was, I mean, it's filmed just like a classic period piece with the relatively stationary camera, the kind of blurry lenses, especially on longer or further shots. Performances are fine, but the story is just boring. It's very episodic. It doesn't really have a driving force for a huge portions of the movie, I thought that the themes were very basic. Like, honestly, it was just a Martin Scorsese rise and fall, you know, getting everything you want isn't going to make you happy story that Martin Scorsese, that you can find in any of Scorsese's gangster flicks. So Kubrick, mm. you let me down. Uh, I'm ashamed of you. And yeah, I would say that if this was his most underrated movie, that would be justified. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm really excited to get into this then because I am a huge fan. So I'm ready. I'm ready to win you over, Elliot. You've, you've set up a large ball and I'm ready to scale it. I've got my grapple hook of notes here. 
and I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's let's dive in. I think the first thing that I want to talk about that kind of I heard from your thing is this is a rise and fall, right? We see Barry Lyndon as kind of a doofus 20-something, and he makes some silly mistakes, and he has to leave Ireland. And then after he leaves Ireland, there's kind of all of these mishaps, and eventually he manages to kind of con or stumble his way into uh, a very good marriage with a rich woman, which is where he, uh, where I think you could say there's the peak, I guess you could say. And then the fall is most of the back half of the film as it all kind of uh, doesn't end up working out for him so much in the long run. And I think it's interesting that you characterize it as a rise and fall because I think there's, I see elements of that, especially elements of, like you said, this idea that getting what you want won't make you happy, that uh, Barry spends most of the movie trying to be a gentleman. There's two separate sections where where the narrator says, from this moment on, Barry vowed to be a gentleman, that he's trying to be a good, reputable person, and he's just kind of never able to do that. But I kind of, what I kind of see as the main idea of the movie and the thing that I found really fascinating about it was that it was less about getting what we want won't make us happy and more about the fact that And this is not something I think is necessarily true, but I think this is something Kubrick probably thought was true and something that this movie espouses, which is the idea that you can't ever really be better than your own worst moment. That, and we can get more into this, and so I want to, But I think the back half of the movie is where it really picks up for me and where I find it fascinating because Barry sets himself up for failure by being a terrible husband. And then there's a sense in which he turns it around significantly, that he apologizes to his wife, he starts being a better person, and he starts kind of being the kind of person that he was trying to be or he was maybe hoping to be when he set out on this journey. But because he had already alienated his uh, his stepson, his son that his the woman he married already had, he had kind of already sowed the seeds of his own destruction. That eventually the son comes back and takes everything from him, and Barry has to go and die in um, ignominy. However you pronounce that word, ignominy. Just give up. <laughs> but I think it's I, I think it's a very fascinating examination of a person and kind of how we struggle to move past our own worst moments or how we struggle to even be able to see. Because the narrator says at one point that for his entire life, Barry just blamed the son for all of the issues, that he felt like the son hated him to begin with. And even when he was being a better person, Barry never came to the realization like, oh, I was a dirtbag and that's why he hates me. It was like he was still unable to kind of really root out the main sources of his own issues. So I kind of see that as kind of the thrust or the thematic idea behind the movie, or I see that as a lot of the idea behind the movie not necessarily a rise and fall so much as a fatalistic from the moment Barry left Ireland, this was always how it was going to go. Well, well, I don't, I don't, I don't see that so much myself. I think like he, at the 11th hour, like maybe with, I don't know, 
20 or 30 minutes to go, he starts saying like, oh, everyone hates me, justifiably so. But so he kind of has a realization about himself, but he doesn't make any effort to like make it right. He doesn't reach out to anyone or like try to build bridges, mend fences with anyone. So if that is the case, which I'm not sure of, I don't think it's done very well. And also, that's just a very bleak, <laughs> stupid thing to say. I agree it's bleak, and I don't necessarily agree with it. But I think it's fascinating in a genre that is typically characterized by, you know, rom- romantic sort of stories or very dramatic epics that we get this type of movie that we get a movie that is very slow. I'm not going to disagree with you there is very, but is also very concentrated on kind of a character study of Barry and a character study of the type of person he is and the ramifications of that person that he is. So I find it really interesting. Obviously you didn't. I don't know. I mean, they, there's always questions of like the mindset that you're in when you see a movie, your sleep levels, whether you've eaten or not. It's like your weight. It just fluctuates based on what you've been doing recently. But I still, I, I just don't see anything like that in the movie or not enough. Like it would need to, here's an idea. How about we trim a good 30 minutes off the beginning and if you have to have it, tack it on to the end to reinforce these ideas that you're talking about. Or better yet, never just get rid of the 30 minutes altogether and work that in more consistently throughout the entire movie. Because I just didn't see any like legitimate, earnest attempt at redemption. Like he just kind of realized, sort of that I'm a bad person, or I'm not even sure he realized he was a bad person. He just kind of realized that everyone dislikes him and they have good reasons for that. But it doesn't really go anywhere. And part of that is, I think that Barry's character is underdeveloped to begin with. Like, he very much falls out of the movie for several times where... He's on screen, but the narrator is just talking about him. And I don't think that's a very good... Mm. I don't think that's the right move for a movie. Like, that, that, that's fine for the book. It's not a very good move for the movie. Because if this movie is a character study, and I'm not sure that it is. I don't know. I, I'm still pretty satisfied with my rise and fall. What, if, what you, if you get what you want, it won't make you happy theory. But if it is then I think you need to be much more intimately acquainted with this character, his backstory, his motivations, his hangups, and his what makes him who he is in order to make that pay off. And I, I didn't really get that because we were constantly seeing him at such a distant, impersonal remove. Yeah, uh, I can sort of see that. I guess, too kind of start talking about that as well as start talking about some of the other things you kind of mentioned. Let's try and maybe split. The movie is split into two parts itself. Part one is the rise of Raymond Barry, him getting to the point of marrying the woman. And then part two is the fall. This is him as Barry Lyndon and then his eventual fall into destitution. So let's, let's talk about the first part. Cause I, I do think rewatching it this time, it was weird how much of a tone shift I feel like there is that the first part is funny. It's not like hilarious, but there's more than a few moments that are, in my opinion, played for joke jokes, or at least played for laughs that I found reasonably funny. Like when he gets robbed, just the way the guy was talking to him in robbing him was very formal in a way that I found very humorous. But the first part of the movie is made is mostly just like the misadventures of this guy as he's kind of making his way across Europe that he 
gets in this duel with a British officer and he ends up thinking he killed him. And so he has to leave Ireland and then he joins the army and then he deserts the army and then he gets picked up by a different army and he has to, he gets drafted into theirs. And there's all of these sort of silly little misadventures. And so I guess I didn't hate it, but there was a part of me that was like, man, this is slower than I remember. And this is taking up more of the movie than I remember. And so I think this is probably where, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this is probably where the movie lost you. That these misadventures don't really seem to have a point or a driving force. And it does seem like it's doing very little to establish the character of Barry Lyndon beyond just like he just kind of goes wherever the movements of history or wherever the most expedient path is for him to kind of be able to do whatever he wants. But, you know, what was, what was your sense of kind of the first half of the movie? Also the back of the DVD that I got called this movie a satire, which I don't, maybe I haven't seen in a period drum. I don't see how it is. And if it is the only part that would be a satire is the first part of this movie. And so whatever. But what was your kind of sense of the first half of the film, of this first part? Yeah, I I mean, the movie never had me to begin with, so it can never lose me. It mm. never really hooked me with any kind of conceit because early on I was looking for like some kind of conceit or inciting incident that would drive the rest of the plot and you kind of get that when he gets exiled but the inciting incident doesn't really inform much of what happens later on it it's just to get him out the door yeah so yeah i thought that it was it felt to me like it was being unintentionally goofy like i was supposed to be taking it seriously <laughs> but i wasn't because the proceedings were so lighthearted and weird and silly it reminded me in parts of the general by buster keaton of this guy just sort of yeah. accidentally himself into great success great military success or military battles and in other parts it reminded me of now i'll give i i'll give a thousand dollars to anyone who understands this reference it reminds me of a certain Star Wars The Clone Wars comic about three three guys who pose as clone troopers and then sort of much like in this movie stumble into different battles and do very well in them <laughs> largely by accident. So if anyone can correctly name that comic then you know I'll lie and say i'll send you a thousand dollars in the mail um <laughs> but you know i i don't lie to a lot of people so that in and in and of itself is valuable mm -hmm. what was i saying we weren't we're not talking about star wars we're talking about barry linden no <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah so i like i said i think that the the first this movie the first part of this movie was missing a few things crucially a hook something to keep me invested be that a strong character for Barry, there isn't one, a some kind of goal for him that I that I relate to or at least can empathize with, there isn't one, or some a consistent sense of humor that actually makes me laugh, also absent. See, and it's interesting because I feel like it has all three of those things almost in the absence, and this is where I'll talk, and this is going to get real pretentious really fast. But I think, so some context, Kubrick was trying to get the money for this movie. He wanted to make a Napoleon movie, but it was going to be way too gosh dang expensive. And the studio said, like he had all the stuff for a period drama, so he chose this book to adapt. And he asked the studio for money, and the studio said yes, as long as he cast one of the two most famous actors in 1975, which was Ryan O'Neill or Robert Redford. And he went with Ryan O'Neill. And I think it's one of the greatest casting choices of all time. 
Because Ryan O'Neill, for as attractive as he was known as being, he kind of got famous by being in very schmaltzy love stories, including the movie Love Story. (laughs) Despite the fact that he's very attractive, he has almost no natural charisma. He can at times. I think he's fairly charismatic in Paper Moon, which, Elliot, you've seen. But for the most part, he has kind of a vacuous look that makes it seem like nothing is going on behind the eyes. And I think it lends itself to all of the things that you were talking about in regards to Barry Lyndon, that Barry doesn't have a strong character. And I think that's because he's kind of an idiot. Like, he's basically a moron who has very little desire or like planning beyond just an immediate what is the thing in front of me that I want for this entire first half of the movie that he's just consistently easily roped into anything because like in the scene early on in the movie when uh, it's talking about his cousin, like his cousin kind of comes on to him it's very clear that he does not have a great amount of like attraction to her because she has to basically force him to make any sort of a move on her. So it's clearly not really his idea. And then he just runs with it because he doesn't really have anything else. So I think if anything, the first part of this movie, in my opinion, is establishing the character of Barry Lyndon in the fact that Like, he doesn't have much of a character. And then the back half is when he kind of comes to that realization and gains a bit of a character. But it's too late to really mean anything. And so I think it's a really perfect pairing of a character and an actor. Because Ryan O'Neill does such an amazing job. I loved the scene when he comes across the two office... When he comes across the way he gets out of the British Army, that he steals an officer's uniform because there's two officers um, chilling in the river together. (laughs) And just the way Ryan O'Neill plays it, where he's just like dumbfounded and it takes him a bit for even to like make the leap to, I could use this to escape. That I just think it's so fantastic that he's so dumb and he's able to kind of get out of this. And then in the back half, we kind of see the ramifications of being that stupid. I guess. But I I am fully aware that that is like a very pretentious reading of the movie as well as maybe and you can answer me in this reading a bit more into it than you think is actually there. But that's where I see kind of the purpose of this first half of the movie is establishing the non-character of Barry Lyndon's lack of oh shoot what's the word? Oh, fiddlesticks. It's not drive, but it's like in a story, the character has like free will. But what is it called? Uh, It's not motivation. Oh, gosh. I can't remember what it is. Freedom? Yeah, something. It's something like that, but it's closer to like their own intrinsic. Maybe it is motivation. I don't know. Agency, yes. He has very little agency because he has very little, like, intelligence to create any amount of agency. Thank you. Well, that's great. That doesn't make for very compelling viewing to me. That sounds a lot like my defense of the Big Lebowski, to be honest, Um, which I'm sure you'll be very flattered by that comparison. I guess I didn't get the sense that he was... I didn't get the sense that he was dumb or anything. I just got the sense that the writers couldn't be bothered to the writer Kubrick couldn't be bothered to like inject him with any kind of character. I just, he said he seemed empty to me, not in like empty headed, but like fully empty, like very, (laughs) now it's my turn to search for the right, for the right word. Very flat. (laughs) And Um, flimsy in terms of his characterization. So, I mean, in the, in the moments where he was giving people the thousand yard stare, I didn't think like, 
wow, the gears are really grinding here. I was more like, when can I open my computer and do something else? <laughs> That's See, and it's interesting that you compare it to Big Lebowski because I intensely dislike that movie because I feel like it is deeply pointless and stupid. Whereas even in the first half of this movie, I really enjoy watching Barry Lyndon just like idiotically work his way through so many things. Like he goes to the one woman's house and sleeps with her. But again, it feels very much just like he's going through the motions of a role that he's supposed to be playing. So, and I also, I find the first half again, not like hilarious, but I find it reasonably funny. And I think a big part of that is the narration I really like just like the opening shot of the movie where the narrator says, I think he says like Barry Lyndon's dad was like a very talented so-and-so and would have been very successful had he not been killed in a duel. And then right as he says that he gets shot in the duel and it's just a very darkly dry sort of joke or it feels like a joke to me. It made me laugh. So I think I agree. The first half of this movie is very slow and it feels like there's very little, but that's where I think the second half of the movie really turns up and just blows my mind with how good it is. So let's, let's dive into the second half. You can get the first word before I talk about how amazing I think this is. What did you think of this, the second half of the movie or was it more of the same feeling for you of watching the movie. Yeah, everything I said about the first half applies here, only worse because at this point the movie was already like an hour and a half long and so the prospect of facing another hour and a half of all that was just compounding my frustration and my boredom. Like at this point mm. I even if even if Barry did like start having an actual character at this point, I would still be frustrated with the first hour and a half of this movie. That is too much time to be wasting with just wheel spinning and pratfalls. Not very funny pratfalls or very interesting pratfalls. And then the next movie, or not, not next movie, the next part of the movie, ugh, it is even <sighs> slower, I think. Like, we're still... Really? We are still dwelling for extended periods of time on scenes that can be done. I swear to you, they can be done quicker. It's, I, I could, it is, you do not need to be a masterful editor to see where the trims are. And, I mean, also, like, his wife has ten lines of dialogue I'm not sure why she's even in this movie. They, they, she could have, she, they could have listed her in the credits as Miss not appearing in this film, and it would, it would have made a lot of sense. Monty Python reference. Everyone loves that. Good one. Yeah, I was, I was just, I, I'm gonna struggle to talk about this part of the movie because, like I said, I was checked out. Like, I didn't stop watching or anything, but I was no longer engaged. I was no longer looking for stuff in the movie because I was just like, all right, I'm out. I'm, I'm going to let my attention wander a bit. Wow, that's too bad because this back half of the movie contains, I think, two of my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in films, period, and two of my favorite Stanley Kubrick scenes, period. And I, the first one, and it's not like a huge thing. And again, it's very underplayed because the movie is not incredibly concerned with showing us every step in a character's path. It's more just showing you kind of the important moments and you kind of have to piece together the rest of it. But the scene where Barry comes to his wife when she's in the bathtub and apologizes to me is just such a huge 
pivotal scene in the movie that up to this point, Barry had never done anything that was selfless or even remotely like a good thing. Everything he had done had ultimately been kind of in service to a selfish goal. And this is honestly, in my opinion, maybe the only moment in Kubrick's entire filmography where a character does just like a good thing that he realizes what he was doing was wrong, that he was running around on his wife and cheating on her with all these people that in clear view, he's on their like land kissing a woman and he decides to be better, which I guess I'm assuming he decides to be better in that we're not shown him cheating on people after this point. But I I feel like this is a pivotal moment in the movie where he finally does something meaningfully good and makes a meaningful change that he comes to her and he apologizes and I just kind of love the simplicity of it that it's not like a huge thing but it's very evident that like he's trying to make an earnest attempt at something I don't know it's always that scene stuck with me ever since I watched the movie and I feel like it's almost the linchpin of the entire film that it's when Barry shows who he is, and then the rest of the movie is showing that little too late there, bud, that he had already alienated the source of his downfall, that he had already created the seed that would grow into the end of his success, which I think is such a classically Kubrick thing, that it's like, oh, you're a good person now? Too bad. You did one bad thing, so you're screwed. But do you remember that scene? Did you, I'm assuming not, that you didn't have any meaningful emotional reaction to the scene. But do you, do you remember that scene, I guess? I do remember that scene. And I think you're right. The movie does have a problem with telling and not showing. So I think that uh, inadvertent criticism is well aimed. Um, no, I, I, was really, I don't remember saying that. That scene was really, that scene was dumb because I don't think that he was, very contrite at all because it's so fast and he doesn't say like anything other than I'm sorry. The sense I got was that he didn't want his wife to be mad at him. Not that he was legitimately sorry for what he'd done because he didn't, he didn't say anything. Like there was no attempt at reconciliation or it was, if I was her, I would not accept that. I would say, like, can you, like, say something else? Do you understand why what you've de- why what you've done here is not acceptable? And, yeah, so I, it certainly was too little too late if that's indeed him trying to make legitimate amends. But I don't think it is. Because how could it? He says, he says two words and then he kisses her and that's it. Like, there's no depiction of him, there's no depiction of him, like, grappling with it or trying to be a better person. So, th- that's too little too late from Kubrick, if anything. Well, see, and again, I think this is the different, because I already said that I think one of the strengths of the scene and the movie is that it shows you just enough that you can glean what the change is and not so much that you have to sit through a bunch of dialogue that you've already heard before, or that you can easily imagine what it would be that I, I don't need to hear him say what he's specifically sorry for or why he's sorry for it. I just need to see him say, I'm sorry. And then I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm a human being. So I can piece together the rest of this thing, but I don't need to be shown it. I think it is kind of, show don't overtell i guess is what i feel like the movie kind of does well i disagree i think that people who legitimately try to better themselves would evince more emotion in the moment of reconciliation and would that would manifest itself more noticeably later on and so it maybe it's just the equation of Kubrick wanted to show like five minutes of a magic show for reasons beyond human comprehension. And so he cut out the more like 
the less salient things like character development to make room for that. That's a decision. But in lieu of that, I there's really nothing for me to work with. Interesting. Well, then let me get to my second. You're going to ha- really hate this one then. <laughs> I guess second of three. I guess there's kind of three scenes. The second part of this movie, I get, of this back half that I want to talk about. Elliot, I'm not joking here. When his when Byron died, I was shedding like many tears. I was an absolute wreck. I think it the movie so beautifully shows how much he loves his son. I'm also a sucker for like father son stuff because I love my dad and I think he did a great job and I think dads are awesome and cool. So I love father son stuff. So it always like gets to me. But that in particular, I thought it did such an amazing job of showing that, you know, how much Barry cared about his son, that he loved his son. He was willing to do all of these things for his son. And then his son dies. And it is just such a brutal. And I mean, the cut from Barry just and again, Ryan O'Neill does an amazing job in this film, I think, because he does not emote a ton. But that scene in the bedside when he's telling Byron the story of them capturing the fort and he's just like breaking down bawling as he's telling it and then just a smash cut to a child coffin is just brutal. I mean, it was awful. I was bawling my eyes out sitting on the couch watching this. And I don't remember being that emotional the last time I saw this movie, but it just really hit me. Like I just really... It really struck a chord. Elliot, did you start crying at that point too? No. Nope. I was unmoved. (laughs) You don't care about children? Um, I don't care about fictional children. uh, Especially when they're just as underdeveloped as their fictional dad. I mean, he's a kid. I don't know how much development I needed. I just, it it was rough. That was a rough scene for me to sit through. <laughs> okay. But then, let's get to the, 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 the third part. And this is one of my favorite scenes in movie history. I love it. I think it's incredible. I liked it even more. On rewatch, the duel between Barry Lyndon and his stepson is immaculate. I mean, just the setting, they're in like an abandoned barn. There's pigeons in there for some indescribable reason. And just the way that Kubrick makes you sit in just the awfulness of this duel that... The stun gets to shoot first and he misfires into the ground and that counts as his first shot. So then he's like just a wreck. And I love the actor. He's doing an amazing job that he's just a sniveling. I hate the stepson. He's such a loser. I dislike him intensely, but he's such a coward and he's standing there waiting for Barry to shoot. And there's a point when he runs off into the corner and pukes and it's just brutal. And then Barry shoots into the ground because he's grown, he's a better person, he's willing to forgive. And then the son, oh gosh, it really, I knew it was coming and it still pissed me off. The son decides to shoot and he shoots Barry's leg and then ruins Barry's life. And I just think this duel scene is incredible. The acting is amazing, the setting is amazing, and the way that Kubrick just marinates in the awfulness of it. And I think it's also like a really amazing kind of full circle moment that this whole thing started because Barry couldn't let something go. And so entered into a duel that he never should have, that he stupidly did because of a silly, idiotic reason that he then gets his comeuppance because of a similar person who can't move on from something, even when given a chance on a silver platter to be able to let go of the thing he can't. And 
again, it's a Kubrick movie. So it feels like Kubrick just saying, none of us can, we'll never be able to escape these things. But I just think this dual scene is incredible. I think it's so good. It's amazing. It is such, oh my goodness. It's, um, it's, I love this scene. Well, that's unusually sadistic for you. Um, I thought that this scene was fine. I mean, again, like, I think that there there was just no way for this. I'm going to I'm going to stop being like sarcastic and mean to Nathan and I'm going to be going to make my own attempt at earnestness. I think that there was just no way for the movie to win me back. That it had, in yeah. my mind the movie had already ended. I had already made my decision and that may not that may very well be not the right sort of mindset to have when watching a movie. But like I said in the Barbie episode, I can only rate a movie based on my experience, on my personal experience of it. And at that point in the movie, I was checked out and there was, and short of something insane happening, like Darth Vader making an, making a sudden appearance, <laughs> it was over for me. So I was like, yep, okay, let's move on. Let's get it done. Let's wrap it up. So yeah, I there it just it didn't do anything for me because I was just not invested enough for it to really land. Yeah. Well, and I think this is where your comparison to Big Lebowski I think works the best cuz I've since watching the movie seen people describe how much they love the funeral scene where they're spreading the guy's ashes in the ocean or whatever. Spoilers for the big Lebowski. Not who dies, but... You yeah, know. you didn't even say who um, dies. Yeah. Well, just in case someone dies in it. <laughs> um, but I've seen people describe how much they love that scene, how they feel like it's such a powerful scene, that it's such an amazing scene. I don't remember a single thing about that scene besides it annoying me that it felt like a dumb joke that I didn't find funny which is how I felt about the entire movie. You're getting a little bit of a bonus Big Lebowski review here. But like, I felt the same way about the Big Lebowski and then about that scene, that even if someone described how much they loved it, I'm like, I guess, but you got to watch all of the Big Lebowski to get to that scene. <laughs> so, I don't know. I... I get, I get what you're saying. That that'll happen. You're gonna have to rewatch Barry Lyndon sometime with me, and I'll keep you entertained with jokes and funny comments as we watch. <laughs> if you rewatch it two or three times, Elliot, you'll love it. I swear. Not happening. It's like sorry to bother you. You need, you just need three or four more times. Uh, yeah, I actually, I mean. If we're going to talk about The Big Lebowski, which we really shouldn't, I actually find that joke to be a very good example of the Coen's brand of dark humor, the one you're talking about. Yeah, I I want to make something clear that I probably should have made clear earlier, that I didn't hate this movie. I didn't, like, really dislike it. I was just really indifferent towards it. Like, it just didn't really move me in either direction. And the times where I did have strong feelings about it, they were not good strong feelings. So that is what will inform my rating for when... I know everyone's really invested in this. They're constantly giving us feedback and fan mail and stuff like that. And sometimes they get upset with our, our different ratings. So just want to head that off at the pass. Yeah, well, sometimes I get upset with my rating. Like, after we record, I'll be like, dang, I shouldn't have given it that rating. I totally don't feel like it's that rating. But these things happen. Um, I guess, do you have any... I guess I could say as kind of final thoughts, I don't think this is a perfect movie. I think some of what you've said is true. I think the movie, especially in the first part, is maybe slower than it needs to be. And I think it you do kind of have to do some finagling to make it a cohesive thematic experience, but there's not really any point of this movie that I'm not enjoying something about it. We didn't really talk about the technical elements, but the costumes and the cinematography are just absolutely gorgeous. Kubrick was inspired by classic uh, paintings of the period, which is why there's so many long shots where he's panning out or panning in that it, it looks like a painting 
And it's just gorgeous. There's so many great shots in this where it's so huge and there's just, and the characters are very small in the frame. And it feels, again, even though this movie, especially at the beginning, can be kind of funny and silly, it communicates so much of this sense of loneliness that the back half of this movie then has, and especially the ending, which I think is just brutal for Barry, that he puts in, not on screen, but he puts in work to be a better person and ends up with diddly squat for any of it. Or at least he does the only two, like apologizing to his wife and then shooting the floor are two things that I don't think the person who sets out at the beginning of the movie would have done. And so I think there's a sense in growth, but the again, because Kubrick, and I don't agree with this, but I think it's kind of interesting and just so brutally bleak. Just this idea that he, no amount of growth would have ever been good enough for him to escape his comeuppance for the bad things he did, which is so unfair, but I think it's so indicative of Kubrick and I find Kubrick a fascinating director. So I, I really love it for that reason. I meant to be talking about negatives, but I ended up back on positives. <laughs> Because I just like this movie that much. But yeah, I think sometimes it's a bit too slow and maybe it's a little too long. But I don't know what I would necessarily cut because I really enjoy most of this movie. I find it funny or entertaining or cool or just like really, really fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the costumes, set design, cinematography, all good stuff. Kubrick, I don't think he's ever shot a bad movie um, or overseen a bad looking movie uh i like history i like historical settings this movie moved me to read up on the seven years war while i was in the bathroom taking a break from the movie um so that was interesting although of no merit to the movie yeah it's just it's just not enough like a move it, it could be the most well shot movie in human history, I don't even know what that would be if I had to choose. But, like, it's shooting stuff that I don't care about and that I don't connect with. And as we've talked about many times on this podcast before, if you don't, not connecting with the movie's characters and story is a fatal flaw that it is very difficult. Unless you're making very specific movies, it's very difficult to recover from that. Yeah. That's fair. Well, do you want to get into ratings? I feel like neither of these will be that much of a surprise for people. But Yeah, um, I am going to go first, even though we didn't talk about an order. Uh, for all the reasons I've said, I don't feel the need to reiterate anything what I've already said. I think I've I've completely destroyed Nathan. I've I've laid his <laughs> I've laid him bare and made it clear that he's he's ridiculous for liking this movie. Um, so I'm going to give it a, but I didn't hate it. Uh, it didn't like make me want to throw foodstuffs at the television, at the television. I was just really bored and uninterested by it. There's not enough that's bad enough to make it like Jurassic World level bad. As I've said before, it takes a lot, a lot of stuff actively like pushing the rating down to push it down or pulling it up, as the case may be. But in this case, there's just nothing there that I feel really strongly about, so I'm going to give it a C-. minus. Wow. That's bonkers. I love this movie. It is... On rewatch, I think it's easily my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie. I It has so many amazing scenes. I've already talked about how it has these great scenes. There's other scenes, too, that I think are very, very well done. And, yeah, it's beautiful. It's amazing. I love Ryan O'Neill. Shout out to my boy. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with, like, a 9.0 out of 10. It's what I would say for me. There's some times where it's a little too unemotional and it's a little too slow, but for the most part, I love this film. Love it. How much did they pay you, Nathan? How much do you value your <laughs> professional integrity at? Vivian Kubrick Venmoed me 
sixteen dollars. <laughs> this give this a good review. <laughs> 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 all right let's all right well yeah yeah let's talk about recommendations um i'll go first like i said i found this movie to be a rise and fall like the problems of excess type movie that martin scorsese does so i'm going to recommend a martin scorsese movie in fact one that i watched very recently and that's the wolf of wall street uh this movie is as I said to Nathan after I watched it, and Nathan has pretty mixed feelings about this, I've gathered. But for me, Martin Scorsese in his gangster movies, in these types of movies, has always been a chronicler of excess and its consequences. I just happen to think that this is the most potent and pointed example of that. Um, like, the people in this movie are depraved. Like, this is... The, the To call it debauchery would be to trade in gross understatements. Um, the character of Jordan Belfort, who the movie centers around, reminded me, or Barry Lyndon reminded me of him, in that there's just this thing that he really, he really wants, like, status and wealth, and um, he wants to live at the top, but his choices and how he gets there eventually undo him. Uh, he doesn't learn much of a lesson. Um, that's just because he's kind of a rotten person, like, in real life and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I I think that it's a really entertaining movie. Some bits of it I was tempted to fast forward because they were just pretty stomach-churning. But it, it, it doesn't feel gratuitous. It feels like it is making that point of, like, all this stuff, all this... All these vapid jerkhead, terrible people characters are ruining their own lives through their own choices. Like, it's a very Victorian kind of story. It has a very Victorian sense of justice that your choices, you reap what you sow, basically. And I thought that it was, this was just, so far, my favorite example of that in Martin Scorsese's extensive catalog of those kinds of stories. Yeah, I think that's fair. Maybe we'll review it someday because I I do kind of have mixed feelings, but I, I also kind of agree that it's probably Martin Scorsese's best version of this besides maybe The Irishman. But it, yeah, whatever. Uh, my recommendation is a different avenue. Clearly, I didn't feel like this movie was that much of a rise and fall, but I'm going to recommend the classic Powell and Pressburger the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. I think I'm going to mention this to you, Elliot. Uh, this is a movie by a British directing duo who made more than a few very critically acclaimed films, but that I don't see talked about a huge amount outside of kind of like film nerd circles. This is definitely my favorite of theirs. It follows uh, the life and death of Colonel Blimp, who is a British colonel, a British officer, and it follows him from the late 1800s into the end of World War II. And it kind of uses him as a vehicle to talk about the shifting attitudes and styles of British people in that era, that it's just kind of this slow decline of the classic British aristocracy and kind of everything you associate with British people. They're very put together. They have everything all buttoned up. Um, but it follows this colonel. It's a fantastic movie. It has a lot of great moments. It has another great duel scene, as well as a monologue that I think is just one of the most beautiful uh, kind of characterizations of the rise of Nazis in Germany. It's a fantastic monologue. But this is another fantastic kind of period piece that follows one character through a very long period of time and kind of shows his changing attitudes or the changing attitudes of people around him. It's a really fantastic movie. I really love it. Uh, so that's going to be my recommendation for this film. Yeah, I've, I've never seen that, so I can't comment. But uh, hey, guys, life is hard and full of disappointments. I mean, it's, it's the most miserable thing you'll ever do. Trust me on that one. Yeah, it's it's just 
it's tough out there. This, this is true. As we see in Barry Lyndon, life is, oh, I forgot to, I totally forgot to mention, but I also find the final the, like the, title what, card what, thing. What is this? The review is over. No, this is, we're still talking. We can, no, I just find start, the final. No, no, stop. It's over. I just wanted to say, I find the final title card such like a classic Kubrick like kicking the nuts that the ending is already pretty much a bummer. And then it's like, by the way, everyone's dead and nothing you were shown matters because death is inevitable. I was like, jeepers, Kubrick, chillax. That's true of, that's true of every movie ever made that hasn't featured an immortal person. Yeah, we'll see. Exactly. I, I just find it funny that he added that because it is, it feels like it has very little to do with like the rest of the movie. It's just this final, like, by the way, death comes to us all but yeah i'm i guarantee you between now and when we die i will make you rewatch this film because i swear if you watch it with me and i'm opening your mind with mushrooms you'll love this movie <laughs> but uh until that time thank you for listening to this latest new episode uh we're gonna be back next week another new episode we're very excited for it so hope you have a great time in the interim we'll see you next week